podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. You're listening to Uncovered with Barat Sundarason and Jared Kimber on the 99.94 Network. We've got a few different topics here. And the first one you didn't know much about, but it was a really interesting thing that I saw, mate, when it comes to Baba Azam. So he's been he's been in the wars a little bit recently. Uh, Simon Duell obviously questioned whether Baba Azam was getting flat pitches that boost his average, which if he is, all, all luck to him. Dean Elgar's probably thinking, that's a good idea. You know, Craig Brassway's like, it. can I do that too? Is that a thing that we're allowed to ask for? Um, uh, and obviously everything's going on with the PCB at the moment, which I think... Was it their new chairman was tweeting um, uh, comparisons to Ramiz Raja? At, from what I could tell, like at 11 o'clock at night, Pakistan time. Um, I don't know where his social media team was, but it was absolutely <laughs> remarkable. But the other thing with Baba Azam is he went to a press conference and he was asked if he had any... Uh, what, I'm trying to think of the exact wording, but I think the wording of the question was something along the lines of, um, did he have any regrets in not having Safraz um, uh, in the team for the last three or four years and and the reason i thought this was interesting mate is i i listen to a lot of basketball podcasts where they're they haven't been in the business as long as us so they've been in the you know some of these guys are professional maybe within the last three or four years and also some of these basketball podcasts you have one person on the podcast who might be a professional writer but he might be there with this you know sort of an uber fan or or someone else yeah. and they talk about this sort of stuff all the time of like the questions that fans ask them to ask on twitter you would never ask that in a press environment because it's a silly question. And in this particular case, it's like, you know, it's a beef question. You're, you're literally asking them about something that people are moaning about on Twitter. Uh, but it's a really interesting narrative that has come in. And I would say you've talked about before that sort of more cricket entertainment writers coming mm. in, right? Um, and that's one part of it. But the other part is I do think there is this I don't want to say bloggers, but so, sort of social media-inspired cricket journalists um, that have come in. And I remember, I've seen a lot of bloggers come in in my time, myself included, obviously. That's yeah. where I started, right? <laughs> um, I've seen a lot of bloggers come in and think that they're going to shake up press conferences. And in the end, they ask really awkward questions that go nowhere, get no good answers, usually end up with them being embarrassed, certainly quite often stilt the press conference. But it is this sort of, new thing that i've noticed where the sort of the i don't know i'm gonna call it twitter beef um style of of cricket reporting has sort of become you know more and more and you know you talked about it in india but it's certainly something that we're seeing in pakistan as well isn't it oh it's happening everywhere jared and firstly uh, i should apologize i'm in a, a motel in um, in a town called adlong um Making my way cross country back to Adelaide after the end of the test summer. Don't don't explain why, because it's just it'll be bad if you explain more. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm in the middle of the gold fields, and I'm not looking at uh, looking for gold. All I was looking for was good Wi-Fi, which I haven't got. So I'm just uh, <laughs> hotspotting it off my phone. So if I do disappear, I apologize in advance. But uh, look, I was having this chat with. Uh, a young journalist this week. Uh, th there's a new kid on the block, a lovely guy called uh, Dani Syed, uh, who I think is 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 with his first cricket gig. I think, um, uh, and and he's just you know he's a lovely guy, always eager to learn. And I was having a chat with him um, about press conferences. So I noticed how he was with press conferences, and obviously you would be a little nervous when you haven't 
uh, spoken to a Pat Cummins or a Steve Smith and you're asking them a question. Uh, and my first first piece of advice to him was, do not ask a question if you don't have to. I mean, a press conference is is, is not a place where you you are obliged to ask a question. You only ask a question if you are, are actually want to know something or find out something. Um, if you are writing or something um, or you know, you've heard something that the player has said or the coach has said, and you are asking a follow-up on behalf of someone. Because, you you know, in a press conference, you can't have... In most press conferences, you don't get an opportunity to ask five, six, seven questions on the trot. No. And also another very important thing I told him is, the press conference is not a private chat. It's a public platform. So even with... Uh, even in terms of what you refer to them, I mean, you don't use nicknames. You don't uh, because it, it's a professional public platform. It's for everyone. I love how many uh, journalists you are subtweeting at the moment. Uh, <laughs> I am. So, uh, and, and and also, then the most important thing is uh, that's why you always let the reporters start off, right? Like, I mean, they they're there, like with the agent. Why does a press conference start with the agency? It doesn't always have to, because they're the ones who ask the most uh, pointed of questions. The the, the actually the most relevant questions in a press mm, conference right yeah. the quote that's going to go around the world more often than not yeah exactly i mean even I, i've been one of those journalists who's like ha 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 look at them asking the basic questions but those are the questions that matter more what is the pitch going to play like what is the pitch playing like what's the match situation if it's a press conference before the start of play or before the test match who's going to play those are the questions that matter all the fluff fluff questions that i asked about reverse swing and ball seam position they're good questions. They get used. I'm not saying I ask stupid questions, but uh, they are secondary to uh, those important questions that the agency guys or a lot of other reporters ask as well. You know what the players call those questions, by the way? They call those crick info questions, which I know you will hate being crick buzz, but <laughs> that is what they call them. It and is. Uh, because it, they, they, even if they don't know where you're from, like, you know, you've got essentially what you have is you'll usually have a local reporter and they'll be like, yeah. So, what do you think of the nightlife in Trent Bridge? Or, you know, what do you, how many Sri Lankan fans do you think you're going to, you know, uh, turn up in Cape Town today? And, like, they're like, okay. So, in their head, they're like, okay, that's a local reporter. Then, as you said, yes. you've got your agency people, your major, you know, radio stations or TV companies. Um, in the old days, now TV companies usually do it on their own now. Um, yeah. But they, they have their, their, their questions. Um, and then you might get like sort of more a newsy one if there's a couple of newsy journalists. And then suddenly it'd be, you know, you, me or Dan Brettig or <laughs> someone ridiculous saying something like, in the last game in the 40th <laughs> over, I think you'll find that, you you know. And they, they do think of that kind of ridiculous. But So when I train young journalists, what I say to them is, look, ask a question if you've got something for your piece. If you're just asking a question uh, – so so that you can get your word in those are usually the absolute worst questions because you yes. don't you don't actually know why you're asking the question so you have all sorts of trouble framing the question yes, which means the players sit in there going uh what what are you talking about um so yeah from that perspective i think it's quite it is quite tricky but but the hard-hitting questions i remember um chris stocks he asked oh. andrew strauss so he sort of started the whole andrew strauss being moving towards retirement we were in Sri Lanka. And, and he started the question with, obviously, Andrew, we all respect you, uh, and, but would you say that this is the beginning of the end? Now, if you remember, Andrew Strauss, I don't think was that old. It wasn't like he was no. 35 or 36. And and Andrew and Andrew Strauss was, I think, a bit taken aback by it. But to be fair, Soxie was kind of at the right period, but he asked it in a very, very 
decent way. And yeah. Andrew Strauss answered it. I'm you and I must have been to 30 press conferences when Memestoni was asked about his retirement. And more often than <laughs> not, he gave a very short answer. So how many times can you keep asking that question? That may be the question that uh the fans want the most, but yeah. usually he would give a very bad yes or no answer, and which doesn't help anyone in the room because they need yes. quotes from him. And the other exactly. the other time, of course, was when he got the guy up from Cricket Australia um and tried to embarrass him at the end of the 2016 World Cup semi-final, which was a a bit of a dick move and didn't work particularly well and and looked a little bit silly. Um, but again, you know, those sorts of those sorts of questions, they're hard to ask anyway. And actually, it's very rare that I remember I think I was at the Shahid Afridi one when he retired from Test Cricket at Lords where and like someone asked him that as a throwaway question and he retired like li- live at the press conference. And I think 15 years that must have been 14, 15 years ago. It's still the only time I've ever seen a question like that prompt that kind of response. Generally, those questions stop the flow, and that's the last thing they want. The journalists are trying to get as much information out yes. of the person as possible, um, which is why you can't have 10 Crick Info questions, and you also can't have 10 agency questions, because even those agency questions, after a while, it stops. It really is a it's a mix of sorts of different yeah. questions. That you, you can get. It's a really interesting thing, but... With a lot of new new people coming in, I can understand why they want to ask those bigger questions. Everyone on online is talking about, you know, Safras has come back and he's made all these runs, and so, surely Baba would be really upset. I was like, well, Safras averaged thirty five or thirty six, and um, uh, Rizwan played pretty well as a Test player as well. Like, yeah. it, it would be different if like Safras averaged forty five and his replacement averaged twenty two. You know, ne- you know, Neville style or something. Then you'd be thinking, yeah, maybe we made a mistake. So it's a really, really interesting one, and it really did feel like to me like a one of those moments that you and I probably because we're too old now that we, you know, we noticed that the industry has just changed a little bit into that you know cricketainment style. And you know what really has hastened that change is Zoom. Right, COVID uh, did a lot of bad things to the world, uh, and I'm not going to put the, the the Zoom. The call, worst thing uh, is it ruined cricket press conferences. Says Baba. I know, <laughs> I know exactly. You know, forget about the people whose families were affected, but it cricket press conference. How <laughs> dare it do it? That so? No, no. I think what happened with Zoom calls also is Jared. Uh, I noticed a lot of this happen, especially from the subcontinent, even here, where it a lot of people who weren't journalists or weren't like everyday mainstream journalists started jumping on these Zoom calls. And it almost became their opportunity to have an interaction with with these players. And the number of times I've seen on social media posts that I asked so-and-so this question, this is me with Virat Kohli. That would be like a freeze yeah. frame with with the person and Virat Kohli. And, uh, and that starts happening. Um, I've seen in India, in Pakistan, uh, I'm sure it'll come everywhere else as well, where I've seen journalists, and I'm sure you've seen, you've seen them as well, sit with mini handicams where, uh, you know, a, when they're asking the question, they're recording themselves or they've got someone else recording them. And then they, you know, turn the camera towards the, the player. And I've seen some very senior journalists do this without naming names, some who I'm really fond of as well. Um, but that's where it stems from. But, but the press conference is really not about you. A, but also what you said earlier, I, I, I'll give you an example. So I am sent on a tour of the West Indies in 2017, right? Uh, my paper has spent a lot of money to send me there. There's only one more journalist from the Hindustan Times. And this is, and the reason I've been sent there is to find out what exactly happened with the whole Virat Kohli, Anil Kumble 
conflict because this is right mm. after that. Sanjay Bangar is assistant coach uh, after the Champions Trophy. The India go directly, so do I. Um, and what happened is the other journalist didn't show up for the first press conference. I don't know where he was. So it was just Virat Kohli, me, and the TV guy. So now I have I, the, my company spending a lot of money to for mm. me to be there for three weeks and dig deep and find out. So I, I and I, I, it's not that I, I, I chickened out or I, I, you know me. I have I'm not one of those journalists who really is too concerned about what a cricketer thinks of me or what anyone thinks of me. But I still have to play the game. Fair enough, like uh, fairly, where I'm being fair to my company. There's no point me asking Virat Kohli five hard hitting, hard hitting questions that Twitter or someone on Twitter wants me to ask. It's, it's I'm the professional journalist. I'm the person on the spot, so I have to do it in a way where I get my information, but I also phase it out because there are going to be many. He's the captain. There are many press conferences uh, still left, or six ODIs, or five ODIs, or whatever uh, India was scheduled to play. So I'll use the most of those press conferences and get the story out, and also not burn the bridge on day one. That's not mm. what a professional yeah. journalist does. But I remember I got slammed a lot for that for by people who are not professional journalists, who are not on the circuit, who don't attend press conferences. People wrote big pieces. Oh, look at this guy. He's been gone all the way and he's not asked the right questions. But but dude, like you're not a journalist. I am. Uh, my company spent a lot of money. Like I said. I know what I'm doing there, right? But that's I, I'm not saying people should not have opinion on the way I sh I do my job mm. or you do your job or other. But but that's the problem. But now what's happened is with the Zoom calls and the subsequent influx of a lot of people coming from outside journalism into the industry and getting access to players in press conferences, if we're seeing more and more and more of that, um, and I I don't know whether it'll go away, and we're just going to see more and more of these clips do the round. People are putting clips of themselves ask questions, so it's only a matter of time before you know these kind of questions. And and invariably you'll see them stuttering. And at times I do feel bad for them. They 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 are out of place in that setting. And there is a place for you to ask these questions as the player leaves, <laughs> or like you know you go and watch them at training in certain grounds. As they leave, you can always approach them and ask a question and take a video of you asking them whatever. But the yeah, I think I think what you're saying there is it is it, there's a. There is a sense in some cases, I'm not saying this particular person, because I did look at the video, but I can't remember, you know, the, yeah. the, the full. But there is certainly a case that you and I have seen where there's, and older journalists are you know, sometimes involved with this as well, but there is a case of a certain sense of performative nature, right? Yeah. <laughs> where uh, I am the one who is going to ask the big question. And, you know, I've, as I said, as someone who came through blogging himself and had to learn how to ask very good questions and, you know, had to be trained in in essentially getting answers from people, right? The question isn't the important thing. Uh, that's a really something I always try and push to young journalists. It's like the question's the least important thing. What you get back from them is really what you you yes. want. Uh, that you know that is what you were trying to make your money off. Is, is that you know and trying to get you know no one cares if you've nailed the question at the end of the day. Yeah, it's it's that you got a really good answer or not is the more important thing. But I I do think there is that that sort of thing where there now seems to be real narratives of what I based on whisper campaigns, based on he doesn't follow this guy on Instagram, uh, oh, and yes. all this sort of stuff. And then suddenly, you know, so they don't like each other. Not all cricketers like each other. That doesn't mean that he, that player is not picking that player, right? Like, you know, the, Akash Akash Chopra's book talks about his relationship with Shikadawan, and it is mm. it is frosty, really, really frosty. 
Um, that's a normal thing. You know, it's, it's no different than a normal work environment. And I think now there's this, there's a social element to this, but also that sort of new cricket aggregator element to this, right? Mm. Where those, those, those micro problems that the two teams have, um, you know, uh, sorry, two players have between them suddenly becomes the only issue that anyone can talk about. And look, it's always going to bother people like you and me more than anyone else, because we do ask the crick info, the crick buzz questions, right? And so from our perspective, the last thing we want is this guy really, really shitty when we're going to say, so when you played that reverse sweep, (laughs) um, you know, or, or in, you know, you you keep selecting this player, but it doesn't actually make sense because uh, of this matchup or whatever it may be. We really want them to talk, right? And and we want to have that kind of dialogue. Um, And, and the other thing I would say is that it, since, I, I would say that the Zoom thing is an issue, but it is it is getting to the point where for a lot of these teams, like the best press conferences, I reckon, are about what five to eight people that are there. Yeah, yeah. Of which two or three have really strong pieces that they want to write because you can almost then have a mini conversation with them, which means that person will talk a lot longer. You know, if you have less than that and you have a non-talkative player, you have dead air. Um, and if you have more than that, it becomes starts to become very you know, uh, aggressive and defensive, which is a natural thing. Cricket's biggest problem is that we still have press conferences, of course, where actually what we should have been doing is opening up. The ICC have tried it with their sort of mix zones, and I know other people have. But the very very basic problem is that the players and journalists don't spend enough time talking anymore. And so every question is seen as aggressive or defensive. Anyway, we'll leave that there, and we will uh, uh, play a quick ad. And then, thankfully, somehow... um, Barat has managed to stay on for this long. And then after the ad, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Pakistan pitches. Welcome back to Uncovered with Jared Kimber and Barat Sundarisen. Um, all right, so we talked about Pakistan a little bit there, but I, I broke a news this week, mate, talking about journalism. Um, uh, uh, it's very rare that I break a news, but um, that Pakistan were fighting their demerit point for the Royal Pindi pitch. So you have a situation where we have maybe the most extraordinary test innings of all time, yeah. England's first innings at Royal Pindy. <laughs> the game ends up in a result, largely because England batted so quickly that there was a chance to have a result. They were they were given, I think it was below uh, was it below par, below average, whatever they call that, that rating. Average, yeah. yeah, below average, which means that you get a one demerit point. If you get five demerit points on a pitch over a five-year period, uh, you then can't, for 12 months, it's possible you won't have international cricket. There's so many caveats that the chances of anyone ever having this happen to them, very, very slim, but the ICC's at least trying. Um, but very interesting that uh, Ramiz Raja said that this was a poor pitch. Fine. That's a, uh, you know, embarrassing, I think was the word he used. Um, and he gets ousted as chairman. <laughs> and the next uh, organization come in and they instantly fight that and I, I wonder how much of that is um that they know that if there's another demerit point they only need one more bad um test match and because realistically you could have argued on either of the first two that they should have got a poor rating and then should actually be holding more points at the moment um so i wonder if it was a strategic thing but also the icc's method of uh, rating pitches is so archaic and it's really based on results, which it shouldn't be. It should be based on Hawkeye data, and they have the Hawkeye data available yes. to them, and they could use that. That I wonder, and and I know, well, 
I wrote the story, so I know it, you know that they actually are going to come with some data in hand and go, ah, it wasn't as bad as you as it looked, mm. just because England smashed us everywhere. Our bowlers were bad, but not the pitch. <laughs> it sounds like going to be the argument, but I did wonder um, if that was the case that this might be the beginning of uh, of the ICC having to change those regulations, just because it doesn't seem like it's that hard to fight it, and you shouldn't. I don't. I don't think you should be able to say this team scored 700 runs at seven runs and over, so the pitch is bad. I think you do have to look at a, more, a lot more than that. Um, but it's interesting to see that Pakistan are willing to take that chance and also that kind of – if that happens, will they not embarrass Ramiz Raja for saying that the pitch was embarrassing? That's the whole point, isn't it? <laughs> That's I, would say- <laughs> I mean, there's a new leadership in town and when Ramiz Raja was the chair – um, he missed no opportunity to criticize the, the previous administration. And uh, e- even during the, the Australia series, uh, uh, he, 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 wasn't, he was rather defensive, I would say, of that pitch at Rawalpindi after the really dull draw. The first, Austra- time, the first one. The first time around, yes, before before baseball was invented, because baseball came about a, a month or so after that, with uh, Brendan McCullum becoming England coach. Uh, and you're you're right. I mean, it is a very archaic way of looking at it. Uh, eventually, I mean, at, at the real the the basis of rating a pitch, it's very simple, and that I don't think will change. Like you want to see a fair contest between batter and bowler. Right, like that's what you want to know. Like it's not always about about the result. I mean, there's no point. Like that first test uh, that Australia played, the bowlers had zero impact on the game. Like the, you could have the Imam ul Haq and Abdullah Shafiq could have batted on and on and on and on and on. Right. The other day, I remember when um, that test match was happening, and I was in Perth. Uh, I remember Manas's reaction when there there was a little TV set. When he came for the press conference, we're talking a lot about press conferences today. And he just looked at the TV screen and he just uh, put his uh, head in his hands because he felt that he missed out on scoring not just 100, but a massive, massive score on that pitch. And he couldn't believe that he got out or found a way of getting out. So, uh, and that that's what it is. And then you have a pitch like, I wouldn't... I would, wouldn't say the GABA pitch that we saw for the Australia-South Africa one, which we did talk about. I wouldn't call that a, a poor pitch because you did have someone like Travis Head making a 90. You did have Bauma batting over 50 balls across both innings. But the, uh, a poor pitch would be the Pune pitch from 2017. Even though Steve Smith got 100, he was dropped. You were there as well for it. Four times? Five times? It felt Five like times, I think. Yeah, uh, he was dropped many times. He made a famous 100. Mm. Uh, but that that was poor because after a point, it, the batters had no chance. Just yeah. like the bowlers had no chance in Rawalpindi. I think it, it should always come back to that or come down to that. Um, but yeah, it is designed in a way where... No major venue. I, I mean, it, it is a very safe formula, right? Like you said, something has to happen really dramatically. Like the Jamaica pitch of 98, yep. was it? 97. When um, <laughs> there were so, so many cracks that play had to be called off on day one. I mean, now that would get a poor rating. Unless something that dramatic happens, I think the ICC will always, or, or the system they have in place will always make sure that nobody gets penalized too harshly. I mean, a couple of below average rating points is not going to hurt a venue for too long, right? I mean, that, that's how I look at it. No, I agree. I looked at it, uh, I can't remember when, but there must have been a reason why I was looking. Maybe it was when the MCG got one or, or something. And it's really rare to actually get higher demerit points than that. And as you said, it would have to be these other these other cases. 
But the interesting thing is, uh, my memory of Royal Pindy on day one was that Crickviz, and I don't know if I was talking to them or they put a tweet up, but I've got a feeling I was talking to Freddie um, or Ben or maybe uh, you know one of them on that day. And and they, I put a tweet up basically saying, um, uh, sorry, I, I chatted to them and they were saying that the actual pitch wasn't as flat as what England made it out to be. Um, I think it did actually flatten out a lot more after that, to be fair, over the next few days. But at that stage, and that's why the data is more important, right? Like, because Mm. what it, you know, it it, it, was it that I always think of that really weird test match. I'm trying to remember what year it was, but it was a test match in South Africa when it was the one where Australia were bowled out for the really low score. Oh, yeah. yeah. When they could have been bowled out for 21. And uh, yeah. this uh, Pat Cummins' debut, wasn't it? I think oh, it was around that era, I think off yeah. the top of my head. But but so that that period, that test match, there wasn't 19 wickets fell for like an, a really low amount. So Australia made a decent score in the first inning. Then 19 wickets fall for nothing, if mm. I remember correctly, straight after that. And then South Africa won the game, I think, with a decent, uh, a decent chase or wh- whatever it may have been at the end. Things like that happen without the pitch playing a big part, you know. And um, I, you know, we've seen other ones as well. Um, you know, I remember Mitch. I think your your mate Mitch Johnson might have done an absolutely brilliant spell um, uh, at one stage in, in one game, and then the whoever he was playing against in that second innings went on to make a bit, bit big amount of runs, and his spell came from nowhere again. Bowlers do do this, and also you talk about Travis Head making runs. That's true, but but sometimes like. You know, batters still make runs on bad wickets. That's kind of oh, yeah. the gig, right? And so I just think it's very, very subjective. So I'm interested to see. I think we both would agree that this has been done to embarrass Ramiz Raja as much as anything, right? Yeah. But I'm also interested in the fact if they do it properly, I think it's going to force the – I mean, the ICC should have already – Hawkeye Dart has been around for a long time, mate. <laughs> like, yeah. There's no reason not to use the available information on the pitch that we already have to tell us whether this is a bad pitch or not, right? Especially because, you know, so many people go, oh, look, in England, that was a terrible t- pitch. You know, no one scored over 250. And you're just like, but Hawkeye could tell us that the swing – was yes. what did it, not the seam, right? And all the the bounce was uneven, but the teams actually made 300 runs in each innings. But when you watch the cricket, you were like, well, one ball was hitting someone in the knee and the next one hit them in the shoulder. It doesn't matter that they managed to make runs on this or not. We have the Hawkeye data that allows us to tell this story. Why on earth would you continue in this day and age to have a match referee and say to him, what do you think? And no, also <laughs> knowing that he's now going to have to be pulled in to talk about all this sort of stuff. No, absolutely right. Well, I also have another way of looking at the pitches we've seen in Pakistan in the last uh, 12 months, though, Jared. Look, this was the big comeback of Test cricket to to Pakistan. Right? I, know, I, I know South Africa went there, I know Sri Lanka went there and played Test cricket. Uh, but England or Australia, England and New Zealand, this is this was built up as the, the official, proper, full-time return of Test cricket to Pakistan. And I, I'm guessing they would people in charge of those pitches or people taking decisions like Ramiz Raja and the others wanted every test to go to the final day. In a way, they have achieved that, right? I mean, every <laughs> every three test ma- or all three test matches against Australia went to the final day. Uh, and we saw some, uh, yes, I mean, Ra- if you leave Rahul Pindi aside, the Karachi and Lahore test matches were fantastic test matches. I mean, the two that have finished recently against New Zealand were outstanding test matches, mm. right? The second one, if they hadn't gone out for bad light, three overs, what, 16, 17 runs to get one wicket left, the way Naseem Shah was hitting it, we we could well have been headed to the third 
a tight test. Who knows, right? It was headed that way. The first, this is first one as well. It went went deep. The Rawalpindi test against England. That that leave Baz side, leave the pitch aside. The last session was just classic hardcore test cricket, right? One team trying to hang in there, the other team finding ways of uh, taking wickets. Uh, so I think in that sense. Even though Pakistan didn't win on the field, uh, I think Pakistan cricket won, and uh, you know it, it meant that there were gripping Test matches that went the distance, uh, and they were played on pitches largely which are, are, are the, the classic subcontinent pitches, which you would see back nineties, uh, mm. um, you know, in the late mid to late nineties. That's that's the kind of Test cricket I grew up watching. Now, there was that one series that uh, my first ever Test series that I saw live from the ground, ninety two, ninety three, when England came to India. I mean, those turned a lot, but still, I mean, Vinod Kamli was making double hundreds. Chris Lewis was making hundreds. They were they were never rank turners uh, the way we see at times these days in the subcontinent. Or these pitches where nobody can bat on like we see in South Africa or or even in England at times. So uh, I think in a way I'm happy with the way all all what how many of those like the six eight test matches in the last 10, 12 months in Pakistan have gone. I, I would say that one reason they stick out is because we're in the middle of a of a batting drought and no one's making any runs and so you suddenly have tests going five days. You you, you suddenly have people you know batting with their you know the the side of their bats basically and being able to make yeah. runs and everything else. Um, the, the thing I would say that backs up a little bit what you're, what you're suggesting with the pitches is those, the pitches were a lot more lively when Sri Lanka and South Africa were playing yes. uh, than they were in these other ones. Hmm. Uh, and also I thought, I thought it was interesting that the commentators were ev- uh, originally banned from talking about that. I thought that was a very, very interesting development. Yeah. Um, uh, when it comes to all that. Anyway, when we come back, we will talk about South African batting and Timber Bavuma and then your piece on racism. Um, and uh, But now, I mean, no better way to sell racism than with an ad. Uh, welcome back to Uncovered with Jared Kimber and Barrett Sundarason. Uh, I told Barrett beforehand to uh, take a look at the comments and there's been about 300 come in. So thank you to everyone for bumping in the comments. But uh, Paul Barrett has probably been completely overwhelmed by the actual <laughs> number of them that have come in. Um, so, yeah. So uh, thank you to everyone if you are on YouTube. We're Obviously, we're recording these now live on YouTube and you can follow them on Twitter as well. And then they'll be on the normal podcast uh, on, on, the, on the next day. Um, so S- South African batting, we've talked about it a lot. But the reason... I wanted to talk about it specifically. It was two things. One's a technical thing. This this is the Crick mm. Info, Crick Buzz one, uh, which is that a lot of people have said to me, oh, yeah, South Africa's batting really bad, but it's the hardest place in the world to bat. Uh, and especially during a pace uh, playing pandemic, you would expect them to struggle. That's 100% true. Um, and it certainly is. It's always been hard. It's certainly been harder in the last five years to bat there than it probably has been. I think West Indies might be the only one that has a lower average. Um mm. Uh, but what I would say is that away from home in the last three years, uh, South African batters have averaged 21.82, uh, which is significantly lower than what they've averaged at home. So this is not a problem of them being able to struggle at home or away. The interesting thing I saw online, and again, this is the sort of thing that you know we, we were talking about before, the, that this narrative takes hold. Temba Bavuma seems to be blamed for almost every ill that happens in South African cricket now. And you know whether it's, mentioning him as a quota player, whether it's yeah. just talking about the fact he shouldn't be playing T20 cricket, 
I found it very interesting, and there were some actual racist tweets that, that were put out. Um, not yeah. all from South Africa either. Sometimes from yeah. uh, from other places as well. But there were some actual racist tweets talking about the fact that he was a quota selection. The interesting thing is, a his test average holds up pretty well against his first class average, considering you and I both think he's a very limited player. And B, he's the best batter that they've had in test cricket in the last two years. And with Dean Elgus, 35 years old, and has averaged 31 over the last five years, he had a couple of years where Dean Elgus fought the good fight against the pace bowling pandemic. And it's eventually either age has got to him or the ball moving around so much has got to him. But it's interesting that no matter what happens to South African cricket, Temba Vavuma seems to get blamed. And you look at some of the records of some of these other batters compared their their first class averages, which are not that special compared to their test averages. And you're like, this is not the man to blame. I mean, he's the only one who faced uh, over 50 balls, like I said earlier, I think in four out of six innings that South Africa had uh, during the series. Oh, and he didn't uh, he didn't have to bat too long in that uh the final innings, which uh, uh, Sarah Lavia batted uh, really well and you know saved the day. But then the game was more or less over. Once, once Simon Harmer looked like the best of the batters, honestly, uh, uh, did what he did in the first session. The the, the test match was more or less um, saved. Simon Harmer batted number seven in a test match a year ago. I'm just saying he's the shadow taku of of South African oh. batting. <laughs> oh no, no, absolutely, and, and he also had the. Uh, he also showed more character and commitment to the cause than any of the other batters. And I had this line, which uh, uh, I don't know, I, it, it might sound rude, but it, it was a fact. Just to put this test summer into perspective uh, from a visiting team sense. I said there were two teams that came here and played test cricket. For one of them, their best bowler was their reserve wicketkeeper bowling fifth change in Devon Thomas. And for the other one, their best batter was their reserve spinner coming in and batting at number eight in Simon Harmer. And if you know why it felt quite underwhelming as a test summer, I think that really sums it up. So, <laughs> uh, And it's true as well. It, it's That's exactly what it was. Uh, and no, I think that Temba Bawama, the only issue with him is he doesn't, he doesn't push on and... Uh, mm get big scores, doesn't get centuries, right? Which has been a problem for him for a long time. He just uh, quite high in the last couple of years, but the big scores don't happen. It's almost like there's a, there's a brain fade and he throws his wicket away. And he spoke about it. I remember he did a, an embargoed press conference after the MCG test. Uh, and a bunch of us asked him questions about that. And he said, yeah, I don't know what happens. I'm just That's where I'm most disappointed with myself. I'm batting well. And he is batting well. He's looked the best of their batters. Overall, he's looked untroubled largely. The only time he got out cheaply was when Mitchell Stark angled one away just before a lunch break and he had just walked out. It was a club. It was one of those dismissals where a batter just just plays at one which he thinks he has to very early on in his innings and gets out. There was nothing horribly wrong with that shot. But but that's the case with a lot of these South African batters, Jared. I mean, Avea I spoke about He's he's looked very solid as well, so much more solid than Dean Elgar or whoever has batted at number three. But till that last innings where he got himself to a fifty or at least in, into the forties, his highest score in the series was twenty one. And I was shocked when I looked at it, even though I've been on air for most of his innings. Uh, I just felt that he got more than twenty one at least once before. But he didn't. He batted well. He left well, and then he would just hit that 50-ball mark or 45-ball mark in his innings and just play a shot he didn't have to. And that seems to be a, 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 an or a, a, a epidemic of that across the, across the board for South Africa. All of them, from 1 to 7, seem to have that issue. 
And just you, you pick up things when you watch teams train, right? And it doesn't always have to... Uh, you can't make a direct link to it always. But one thing that stood out for me from South Africa and watching them train was, A, the disparity between their batters and their bowlers. Like, like every time they had to face uh, their own fast bowlers, I rarely remember too many balls hitting the middle of the bat. Uh, there were edges, there were stumps being knocked off, ribs being smashed, uh, a, a lot of plays and misses. But which is fine. But what really stood out for me, though, was the number of times a batting session would end with someone getting out and them just being happy to walk away, mm. which you rarely see from top bat, top high class batters, or for that matter, even lower order batters in most other teams. I, I've seen so much of Australia in the last five years. Uh, even if you're whether you're Pat Cummins or whether you're Manas Labushin, nobody leaves the net, and you've been part of many net sessions as well, Jared, when you've just been beaten one ball and then played one ball onto your stumps and you walk away. No way. You'll you'll wait and at least get one of the middle of the bat so that you feel good about that session and walk away. Uh, Cameron Green at the MCG, I remember, uh, Andrew McDonald said, last ball now, Cam. And he plays, like, tries to leave a ball and hits the splice of his bat onto his stumps. And Andrew McDonald's like, ah, now there's pressure on me when I give you the next ball because I want you to middle it. Mm. That, that's the whole basis of a net session, right? You you leave confident. That's the whole point. You don't it doesn't matter what sport it is. You don't go to a putting green and miss your last part. You don't you don't do a shoot around a basketball and miss your last shot. Why on earth would you do that? It's such a exactly. bizarre way of thinking. And so many were doing it. And I was that that summed up uh, a lot of uh, summed up their mindset for me almost like it's it's okay or not it's not okay but it's like you get out and you're like you just resign to the fate even some of the expressions on their face after they would get out i mean dean elgar had a shocker of a series i thought you were gonna say shocker of a face because he does have that kind of <laughs> depressed sort of look on his face a lot of the time i don't know absolutely uh, and you know the fact that uh he kept getting the same way and as a batter you can consider yourself unlucky once and he was honest enough to talk about it like if it's happening three four times there is a technical issue mm. but just the, just the expression on his face there was almost this resignation to i what can i do i didn't do, I, I did nothing wrong it's just a good ball or whatever there was no i, I wanted to see more angst with the and which is very similar to the english batters last year the only couple of guys who looked extremely upset with themselves when they got out with Joe Root and Johnny Baston. No wonder that, you know, they made runs or, uh, and then they went on to have like, you know, good summers in England. Uh, I, I think those things add up as well. And the pitches that they've been playing on, I'm sure have a big role to play with. Getting to a 50 or a 60 is often a match winning score, which was an issue with England as well, right? Uh, you've seen a lot more county cricket than I have, where the pitches were in, uh, but pitches was so much in favor of the bowlers, uh, often the early part of the summer, that 250 was a match-winning score as a total. So you'd get to 60 and you think in your head almost that my job's done here. Uh, I think all that has led to it. But technically, the way some of them play the short ball, Jared, is, is quite shocking. Especially when you're talking about a South African team, mm. like you know, this is not a subcontinental team from from the past who would struggle with the bounce in Australia. But um, whether it was Marco Janssen or uh, you know many of the others, uh, it was pretty shocking. It's quite uh, qu you know I don't know what what's going on there. But uh, yeah, no, I think there's there is a lot of issue with South Africa uh, as a batting batting country right now. And uh, who know? I mean, Markram was left out. 
Rickleton wanted to come, but he was left out. Keegan Peterson was a big miss, yes, but uh, I, I don't know if if everyone bats that way or it's it's just like this lot. I mean, you look at it. Keegan Peterson averages about forty in first class cricket, and what just over thirty in Test cricket. Uh, I'm, I'm doing this off my numbers, not off the top of my head. Don't worry, I'm not a freak. Uh, well, I am a freak, but not in that particular. <laughs> way. Uh, you've got uh, you've got Rassi averages forty two, and I'm taking away the Test averages here. So just first class cricket on its own. Rassi averages forty two, uh, forty three, I think, and then thirty in Test match cricket. Uh, yeah, Peterson is forty one and thirty one. Uh, Aiden Markham averages forty nine in first class cricket and thirty four for South Africa. Um, it's just it's not working, right? They pick the guys with the high averages and they don't make any runs. They pick the guys with the low averages, they don't make any. And as I said, outside of Elgar and Bavuma, no one is legitimately batting too close to the level that they should be. And the interesting thing here is the two arguments I heard this week, the first one was Bavuma should be test captain and Elgar um, shouldn't play. I mean, mm-hmm. I've got no huge issue with that. Mm. And the second one was that South Africa were really bad because uh, Bavuma was in the side in the first place. And you look at the rest of the batters going, it's the only one hitting the ball at all uh well and so you have to think that there is still an element of racism there when realistically the issue should not be racism uh racist but racial based at all should we i don't know if you know if if batting if there's a if there's a word that um talks about that but it's more about batting than racism i would have thought Um, just just on that uh just to finish up and you'll probably have to drive off somewhere else silly after this, but uh, <laughs> you, you wrote the big news article last week, I think, that was in The Age about racism in 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 Australia. I was going to say racism in cricket. You talked about that, but it was more about racism in the culture, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, you're about the most affable person I think I know. <laughs> and what was it, the accumulation of a lot of different moments that made you finally um, do that? Because, you know, you and I have talked about that and you and I sort of, you laugh it off a lot. And I think sometimes I've probably got angry on your behalf and certainly not just in Australia, but in many different countries, um, you know, uh, sometimes you see it and, and sometimes uh, it was actually really interesting conversation I had with a player recently where they were telling me that there was no racism in cricket where they played. And I said, well, here's something that a player uh, that another player said about you to me, mm. <laughs> and they were like, "What?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah. they're just clever enough not to say it in front of you. They're, it's not that racism goes away; they're just in a different way." But what was it that sort of made you change your mind and finally open up on it? Because it was a really honest piece, but also it opened you up to. I'm assuming you're now on some right wing uh, watch list. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, on that, like, yeah. I mean, it's the the response is. You know, I'm very touched. Eighty five percent of it has been like so positive. People walking up to me on the streets, uh, in Sydney at at railway stations, at at light rail stations, uh, and people of all ages, all genders, all races, all ethnicities coming in, thanking me or congratulating me on the on the piece. Um, and uh, and we'll get into that as well. But there's been some negativity as well. Yeah, there was a there's one right wing. I don't know whether I sent you the piece. When there's one right wing website who've written a piece of me i don't want to acknowledge them at all but uh yeah i mean uh, it, it i learned a lot about myself reading about reading that piece about how uh, i allegedly have been uh, i'm a drag queen and i also have appeared in um, thousands of hours of gay porn which is if you've gone and found i it, wouldn't well, say thousands i mean maybe maybe 300 mm. yeah but thousands seems like a stretch to me 
It's, it's are we talking much. about just our personal videos? Or are we? T- <laughs> uh, all right, uh, have they made? Have they been made public yet? No. But no, uh, and, and there was a lot of um, other nonsense. I've, I've, you know, been told the usual: go back home and uh, grow a pair, and lots of other nasty things as well. But which kind of justified my, yeah. my decision to tweet tweet what I did two weeks ago, and then when. Uh, Chloe Salto asked me to write a piece. I said, yeah, sure, I will. Because what I've learned is, like you said earlier, and I go and speak to everyone, right? And I'm always mm. I'm always a strong believer in not being rude to anyone. And it does affect me when someone's rude to me, whoever you are. But I realized that I brushed it off for so long. And, and you know, you, you see other people who have lived in Australia and all these other countries, people of color for a long period, they get so desensitized to it. So mm. it's interesting when you speak to them and they say... Uh, just wear it. I mean, even Usman Khawaja's tweet, right? You get used to it. You should not be in put in a position, whoever you are, and with whatever this kind of discrimination we're talking about, where you should just be told you get used to it. It's fine. This is how it is. Which is, which is, uh, uh, you know, something I have been told after I wrote the piece on social media. Adapt or perish, or if you don't want to, uh, you know, live in this in the Australian life or the Australian way, go back to where you came from. Uh, but the thing is. I just realized after a point that why should I get desensitized to it? Like, why should anyone get like reach a point where they sh- they are okay with it? Um, and you know, I, I I didn't want to single out security guards. This is which is why I brought up other examples. Uh, can I just say something? I, I found that really interesting because I would say the Australian security guards, outside of the Lord security guards and maybe the Eden Garden security guards, <laughs> which are both special cases that we don't we can go into another. I would say the Australian security guards in general. I was choked by an Australian security guard at the Wacker once because I was going against the flow of the crowd after the game. I was trying to get yeah, to the press yeah. conference and she grabbed my my pass and yeah. I slipped and she just yanked back on my throat. And oh. I've had many, many bad situations with Australian security guards. They are quite often just incredibly rude and full. So I, I, someone, I can't remember if someone asked maybe when you weren't on last week or they asked uh, me somewhere else, but they were saying, you know, what will Cricket Australia do? And I, and I said, well, if it's security guards, most of them are not employed by Cricket Australia, right? No, they're exactly. contract workers who come in. Um, but I do think there's a general problem with yes. security guards at Australian uh, cricket grounds, um, considering that Australian cricket crowds in the 90s, if they were acting like that, especially the MCG was a little bit differently. But, yeah. um, but I wasn't surprised at all that that's where, uh, you know, a, a good portion of it came from. No, no, and that was the final trigger, right? Like you, and the other thing that I put in my piece, like you, you, as a person of color, Jared, like you get used, not used to it, but you hear it all the time. And you not just hear it. And especially if you're a person of color and who looks slightly out or unique, as one yeah. Uber driver told me who had read my piece, uh, if you have long hair with a beard or the clothes that I wear, whatever it is, you, you get singled out a, a lot more. Right. And it's it's always it's sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's more direct. It's even even little things like if I'm walking my dogs. Okay, they are white, rich looking dogs, I guess. But the number of times I get I have been stopped uh, in my suburb, uh, which is largely white demographic, the average age is 60 plus. Um, and when people ask you in the first five times, someone says, oh, like, how much do you charge to walk them or oh, whose dogs are those? Uh, you just laugh it off or or the first 10 times when you tell them, no, they are my dogs. And the first 10 times you hear them say, are you sure? You just say, yeah, yeah, I'm sure and walk away. But like, you know, after a point you think about it, when you walk away, you're like, 
why did I, why was I okay with that question? That's not fine. I mean, that's not okay for anyone to say that to you. Or, you, you know, you walk into a, a, a pharmacy, right? Everybody else is just like pays, buys what they want to buy, pays for it and goes away. When Isha and I go there, uh, we are stopped at the counter and asked if like, you know, this lady jumps in front of you on the gate and says, have you paid for it? Or you go to the same supermarket every day, but one day you have an extra plastic bag with you, which a couple of fruits in it, like the couple of guys in security or, or people in charge of the, the counter just stand right next to you waiting to see what you bought it this is someone like you know they've seen for the last three years on a daily basis because i don't think uh, i'm very good at grocery shopping that's why i go every day with your rich looking dogs which yeah, is now my favorite much. phrase by the way <laughs> and, and it all adds up and i just reached a point where uh, and it's the tone in which you get spoken to like at the gaba last year there are three other you know white journalists there my colleagues they they are not even asked for their accreditation. They are not even told anything. But I'm like almost physically asked to leave the grass in that tone. Uh, it, it just adds up. And the only reason I decided to start talking about it a lot more, I did it for the first time after the whole Mohammed Siraj incident. You'll remember. But mm. this time I just decided. At least I have a voice. At least I have a platform. At least I could. When I was being chased away at the Gabba. I could call the Australian media manager and say, you know what, can you help me out? But what about the thousands and thousands of other people who have don't have that opportunity to do that, right? Who have to just take it in. And uh, uh, one Indian origin man, like a pretty middle-aged man, he walked up to me at the, at the railway station one of these days when I was heading to the SCG. And he said, oh, you know what? I've experienced so much in the last... 40 years of living here and my daughter who was born here has to cop it every day right like we are trying to go into a cricket stadium last year and someone jumps on her and says no 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 you must be working this is not your entrance you have to use another entrance and he's like at least now that you put it I could res it resonated with me and now I've decided I'm going to speak about it a lot more and even the, those hundreds of people who on social media to re in reply to my article said oh you know this happened to me or that happened to me when they uh, the fact that i made it okay for people to want to come and talk about it that's the only way you can bring change right mm -hmm. and and so many um, may white men of a certain age came up to me the other day one guy walks up to me at the scg and says on behalf of my entire generation i want to say sorry which is what you want to hear and everyone like merv hughes jumping at me and saying if you if anyone ever you are the best i mean he, he always gives me three votes every day for what i wear but he said if anyone ever even says looks at you cross-eyed tell them you know me or i'll be there to like you know beat them up or whoever, from Michael Hussey to everyone in the Australian cricket fraternity, the, the love and support I've got is, is wonderful. But more importantly, I just, I'm so happy to see more people like me uh, suddenly feel the, uh, or the need to talk about it more and not get desensitized. I don't think any kind of discrimination should be uh, normalized to an extent where people are just said, hey, just get used to it. Okay, this is how it is whatever it is. So, uh, yeah, that was my reason for writing it. And I, like I said, I've been quite touched by how people have reacted to it overall. Uh, look, I thought it was great. And uh, I, was, I was glad that you did it. I think because you and I, particularly more than most people, have traveled around the world, I think Australians get really, really upset when you say there's racism in Australia. And it's like, yeah, there's racism everywhere. You, you, you everywhere. did a really good episode with the Caribbean Cricket Boys about 
uh, racism in West Indies cricket between Asian people and black people, which most people don't even know exists, right? Exactly. Um, well, I remember being told by a player once, and he was just like, it's so, you know, he 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 was like stressing out retelling stories of racism, racist abuse he'd had from other West Indians. Um, and, and, you know, we've been everywhere and you and I, you know, I don't know, I mean, I must have been to South Africa, you know, seven or eight times by this point. And, um, uh, and you know, uh, it, and, and many other places around the world. It, it, it's a problem in cricket because it's a problem in society. But that doesn't yes. mean that we shouldn't say that it's a problem in cricket. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a really, you know, really, really interesting one. But um, thank you very much for that. But I'm going to let you head off um, and drive your dogs and, um, and lady. Oh, no, you got one more point. I can see that because you've raised a finger. No, no, I have raised a finger because there is a, I think they're called Super Chats. We have a oh, Super Chat. Look at yeah. you. From, yeah, look at me be all hep about this. AU, AU055, who has a question <laughs> for us. There you go. Yeah, that one. There you, go. <laughs> you want me to read it? You've given up at the name or have you frozen? Maybe, maybe Barrett's frozen. Uh, why is there less tactical innovation from captains or coaches like Bodyline uh, or Basball versus sports like football where every generation seems to have a new tactical strategic thinkers defining their era? I'm going to add to this. I actually, I'm not sure that that is the case. I actually think if you look at uh, the different eras of cricket, if, if you just look at fast bowling from World War II until the West Indies, we basically had bowlers who were spinner. Most, most of the spinners, especially the ones outside of Asia anyway, were specialists in bowling on wet wickets. Um, and they become, as you come back, oh, sorry, everyone. Uh, so if you look at world, I'll give you a history lesson as well, Barrett. Even though you know all this, from World War Two, for a long period, we had a lot of finger spinners who were very good at bowling on uncovered wickets, mm. and and then we had a lot of outswing dependent bowlers. So most of the bowlers bowled outswing. The West Indies come through, and we suddenly get taller bowlers who bowl very much into the pitch. Outswing kind of disappears from professional cricket. Um, up of, of the last few years, it's really rare to find a, an outswing dependent bowler where it never used to be. Um, you now have the wobble ball um, era as well. You then have someone like Ryan Harris, maybe Vernon Philander as well was mm. a part of this, where they basically start pitching the ball up further. That also happens because of DRS. In the middle of all that, we have Abdul Qadir, um, Shane Warne, and um, uh, Anil Kumble as three of the best wrist spinners. And you can th probably throw Murali in there as well because he's also a, a wrist spinner. Um, we actually have massive tactical changes in cricket over and over again. I would argue that the bigger problem is that it's not always been covered correctly. And partly um, it's, it's just that the, the, you could easily do a great book on the evolution of cricket tactics because I wrote a book about the history of cricket where I basically went through it and you could see them changing again and again. You know, if you go back to, you know, WG Grace, we don't talk about WG Grace because he was a fantastic batter, although he was and he was absolutely brilliant at the at the peak of his powers. We talk about him because he was the first player to play off the front foot or the back foot, depending on where the ball was. So we have actually had these sort of things that you're talking about, Io. What we don't have quite often is very good names for them hmm. uh, outside of Bodyline, which is a very, very interesting. Bodyline and basketball have very, very good names. Hmm. But when West Indies start bowling short, we didn't really have a – you know, I don't know what would you call them the the back of the back of a length fast bowlers. Yeah. I, I'm, you know, it and and it didn't make sense. And but there's been a lot of evolutions. I miss the um uh, the cutter bowlers of England um in the uh, late 
um, oh, in the mid-1950s as well. This is just bowling that we're talking about as well. Um, so I do think there has been a lot of um, different things, but I do believe that cricket has had a problem in talking about tactical and strategic um, thinking and also you know, the different ways that people have played it. And I think it's less about formations in cricket, which is a really easy thing to see on, on, a, on a football uh, pitch. Whereas in cricket, you are talking about different lengths, which is a slightly different thing. And now that we have the information available to us, um, but it's also probably why people like me and Barra are cricket writers, because we are more interested in that. And we, at the start of this episode, we talked a lot about the fact that cricket writing mm. has become a lot more um, reactionary and news driven and agenda driven and all that sort of stuff. The It would be remiss of us not to say that it's also become a lot more tactical a lot more technical a lot more um everything else so there's been a lot more good come into the game and a lot more bad one of the most frustrating things for me is you read the old uh cricket books and you can't always tell why players were good because they don't go into the depth of, of what these players did oh no no absolutely and i think there's one thing that connects bodyline and baseball England were involved with both uh i think that has mm. a lot to do with it as well um uh, because uh, if while you were talking, Jared, I was thinking about the so many subtle variations or the even formations that teams have used in Test cricket over the years. I mean, when West Indies yeah. went to four fast bowlers, it wasn't the first time it had been done, but when they consistently started playing four fast bowlers and with they, you know, every time one got injured, some somebody new came in who was even more devastating. India's quartet with spin. India's well. quartet with spin. Uh, the the great South African. We could keep us moving to number seven. Absolutely. We could keep us moving to number seven. The the whole South African era where they had like batters right up to, mm, uh, yeah. you know, Al everyone above Alan Donald had a test 100 at one point. You'd remember in some of those South African playing 11s. Uh, there's been so much, uh, you know, uh, the, the we didn't mention we didn't mention the DRS bowling era, which changed things as well, or the reverse swing bowling era. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, what, what New Zealand did, uh, especially after Chatfield retires, like they start using a lot of uh, Willie Watson and those kind of bowlers uh, across all formats. So, no, I think it's, it, it, yeah. uh, but it in it maybe takes one, uh, one charismatic writer to come up with a term for it or it to become uh, either a controversy or something just incredible that uh, pops up. And I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often these days because uh, the the we spoke about the flip side of social media and the impact it can have on journalism. The On the other side, I mean, this is the era of memes and uh, punchlines. So uh, maybe we'll see an era where it'll happen more and more. Uh, it's just that we're seeing more or on on the face of it, because there's so much more T20 cricket or short form cricket, it feels like there's more innovation that happens there. Uh, but I think subtly there's so much more happening in test cricket as well. And uh, I, you will see, uh, I mean, he's, are you saying just to clarify a meaning on ideological shift in tactics is something materialistic because, oh uh, yeah, I mean, that's what we're talking about as well. I mean, it is a ideological shift we're talking about how different teams change from what works for them uh, to, I mean, India's fast bowling revolution, for example, that's an ideological mm. shift. I mean, for, yeah, yeah, exactly. Where, I mean, they've gone from a team that quite often used either medium paces or even batters to bowl with the new ball to where they are. Uh, you know, the West Indies, we talk about it as a fast bowling revolution. It was also a batting revolution. Yes. But more importantly, I would say it was a professionalism uh, revolution. Australia's revolution was very similar to that as well. And you had, for a long period of time, you had Australia batting with six batters or seven, if you count Gilchrist, when he came in, um, and four specialist bowlers going up against 
South Africa with the other best team yes. who had, I don't know, 12 batters in some of their lineups, <laughs> as you were saying before. So, you know, we have seen that sort of thing. I do think that a lot of the problem with the history of cricket writing is it, other than the England side of it, which you brought up, which is a very, very good, um, uh, uh, you know, thing to mention. But the other problem is that people were writing about their own teams and they really were writing match report pieces yeah. more than anything else. There isn't that kind of analysis. Um, and if it, it's really easy, if you're watching basketball and you're a basketball writer, if all the players are shooting near the ring, and then all the players start shooting for three. You'd have to almost be blind to not see that. Mm. The same with football formations. We can literally see the football team's formation on the field in front of us. It's a lot different with cricket. And I do think that there is, in that particular case, um, there's probably a lot of mini revolutions that have happened. I mean, we talk about Kalu with Arana and Sanas Jayasuriya, yeah. kind of ignoring you know, uh, a Mark Greatbatch had had already tried it beforehand, right? And and not just that. How many teams? The whole pinch hitter era, which I probably am more obsessed with than anyone else. Yeah. Uh, you know, so many so many random players going up the order. These things have happened, and we we start to talk about them in cricket as if everyone knows what they are. Mm. Um, and and so a perfect example of this, um, Io is or Ao fifty five, whatever your name is, is is that. I was I did a podcast with Harry Gurney, which will be up on Red Inca in, in two weeks, and we're talking about slower balls. And I was like, "You bowled the back of the hand slower ball. You can't honestly sit there and tell me that batters can't pick that coming out of your hand." And I said, "But you just said, oh, this guy was having trouble picking my slower ball, and that's not what you mean, is it? Yeah. We don't even always use the right words for the terminology. Like, you know, if you're a professional batter and you can't pick a ball coming out the back of your hand, you, you're broke." Um, so there are little things in cricket that I, I think that we're a long way behind um, mm. when it comes when it comes to the way that we discuss things. And, and my favorite test match uh, when 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 sort of talking about how remarkable well, test series actually is uh, is when Muhammad and um, Sobers make um, their triple hundreds. Mm. So Sobers breaks the world record, but Muhammad maybe even makes the more you know Hanif Muhammad makes the even more incredible innings, yeah. right? There's almost nothing written about that series because West Indies didn't have a huge uh, press um, uh, uh, um, uh, journalism background. There was obviously a couple of great journalists, but not a huge amount of them. Um, and Pakistan didn't have travelling journalists um, no. at that stage. And if they were travelling journalists, they were usually picked by the PCB or by someone else. And so they weren't always of the highest quality either. And that the two of the most incredible innings in the entire history of cricket were played within a couple of weeks with each other. And we just don't know anything about it. The amount of times when you're looking up things about cricket, like the reverse sweeps, a really interesting one. Yeah. There are, there are certainly times that there might've been the case of reverse sweep being played in the 1800s. Yeah. We just don't have enough information on our game. And it's quite often, and, and I'm, I'm going to forgive a lot of those old journalists because the one thing that me and Barra have a huge advantage over everyone else is, yes. is that because of long lens TV cameras and the internet, we have the, and now data and everything else, we're so much closer. Oh, yes. In the old days, they were 80 meters away. They saw it once. And if they blinked at the wrong time or someone tapped them on the shoulder <laughs> as a bowler was coming in, they didn't even see the dismissal. And, and when I first started in county cricket, it was, you had to really like focus so much more on the ball in in first class cricket than you did in test cricket because in test cricket you can literally at most test grounds you watch the ball live and then you can flick up and you can watch it straight away on the oh, TV absolutely. and if you want 
You can have it on your iPad as well. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the early days of covering Ranji Trophy cricket for me back in 2008, 2009, you're right. I mean, often uh, you were writing from memory, uh, right? There were no replays. There were no... Uh, or, or you befriended the... I mean, they started getting video analysts who, whose job was just to video the game often, like at that level. So you befriended the video analysts who would let you see some replays of uh, some wickets. And uh, there's a story I've heard about like uh, how difficult it used to be back then. I think there were three Indian journalists covering the India tour of West Indies in 1960-61 when Nari Contractor gets hit by Charlie Griffith. Mm. Only one of them saw it happen. I think the other two had just turned around or were making a cup of tea in the press tent. Uh, so the one guy who saw it had to describe to them what had happened, why Nari Contractor is on the ground. I mean, imagine how difficult it would have been to write about it. And it's not that, I mean, I do watch every ball that happens, but often there are times if I turn away, I don't turn around. This is why I don't turn around. I always, like, even if I'm talking my head off or somebody else's head off, my eyes are always glued on the field because you never know what you can miss. No. And, and also, I mean, the demands have changed as well, right, Jared? Back then, um, you were asked to write a detailed report of what was happening because a lot of cricket wasn't on TV. Uh, so people wanted to know exactly what... It was almost an yeah. extension of radio commentary, right? These days, I would say uh, writing often is uh, an extension of TV commentary where you're actually writing about... Uh, a I think, I mean, having written a bit about first-class cricket, probably not quite as much as you did, but a fair bit. And also a lot of T20 cricket that people aren't really watching. There's a real freedom in that, in that... You're bringing the story fresh to everyone else. Yes. Whereas if you're writing about India versus Pakistan game or an Ashes test or whatever, like so many people have seen so much of it. There's a real pressure, not just not to get things wrong, because that's that's great yeah. and that should be there. I like that pressure. But also, how do I bring something to someone who might have just watched seven hours of cricket with me? Now, yes, they've watched it on, you know, at the pub with their friend or watched it at their uncle's house or whatever. <laughs> and maybe they saw, you know, you, you know, they were chatting while it was on. A lot of people watch it really closely. And I found that a really exciting thing of how can I continue to bring stuff to people who have already watched all this cricket? But I'm going to let you go uh, because I think your dogs uh, <laughs> need to go to Bendigo. And there are just not enough cricket podcasts that finish with that phrase. Uh, but thank you very much, Barat, for coming on. Thank you to Io for his super chat. Remember, if you if you guys put super chats in and, and Barat sees them, uh, which he did. Uh, we will, we will definitely do that. Uh, but thank you to everyone. And if you've just come on at the end, you don't want to want to watch it on YouTube or Twitter. Uh, it'll be out on the normal podcast Red Inca feed tomorrow. But thank you very much, Barat, and to every one of you in the chat. And we will see you again next time as I very quickly try and find the end screen and the ad. Thanks for listening to the 99.94 Network Cricket every day. Remember to download our app or just search for your favorite team at 99.94 where you find podcasts on Google or YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon and there are many other extras available there as well. There is a link to the show notes. The show is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. Barrett Sundaresan is my co-host. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great production team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orajoti Senapayi and Maida Akam producing podcasts and Makunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube account.